Thank you, Billy, for teaching us a new song. And uh, let's sing both those last songs, the last two songs. Let's sing them again here in the next month or two before we forget how to do it. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. <coughs> Genesis chapter 15, and tonight's message comes a, a lot out of my own experience in, um, my, in Christian churches, and uh, Genesis chapter 15, of course, Genesis 15, 6 is that verse where it says, Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. It's also quoted in uh, Romans chapter uh, 4. You remember what Adam believed. God said, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be the father of, of so many people. that be like the stars in the sky. You can't count them all. God said to Abraham, and uh, Abraham believed God. But in this same passage, God tells Abraham that his descendants are going to go down into Egypt, and they're going to be in Egypt. How long? 400 years. God says, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. Um, and pick it up here in, um, did I say verse 15? Verse 16. Genesis 15, 16. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. We're going to pray, and then I want to talk a little bit about, uh, as Christians, what we can do to prepare for uh, the next generation. Father, thank you for your goodness to us this morning, meeting with us. We had a chance to worship you, and I, for one, and I know my sisters, my brothers, enjoyed singing Christmas songs, not primarily because they remind us of, of, of good seasons in years past, but primarily because they do express worship and joy. Uh, they express our worship and our gratitude that you would send your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. They express our our um, worship of you, a God who reaches down and redeems us, a God who's merciful to us, a God who's gracious to us. I pray as we look at these verses this evening, as we think about what it means for us, that we would be uh, open, our hearts would be open to what you're teaching us, we'd be receptive to the message in your word. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Here in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, which I read to you, it says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, here's two things that the Amorites, the Canaanites, the people who lived in the land when Abraham was there, here's two things that they were doing. The first one was child sacrifice. They were sacrificing their children, not just sacrificing animals to idols, which is idolatry. Additionally, they were sacrificing their children idols. Um, we won't look at every every verse uh, tonight, but I'll mention a lot, so I'll try to mention at least two or three times the reference so you can look them up later, but 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 3, 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 3, references these child sacrifices where people would literally offer their children to idols. And archaeologists, as they have been digging in, in the Middle East, especially there in the area that was occupied by the Canaanites, they have found graveyards with tiny uh, urns in them, and that's where the children's remains were put. Child sacrifice. And God calls that child sacrifice, God calls child sacrifice an abomination. An abomination. 
So here's the, the question, and don't misunderstand. God abhors child sacrifice. So when, when God says the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full to Abraham, this child sacrifice is already going on. How much longer is God going to continue to allow that child sacrifice to go on before he says, okay, Joshua, okay, Israelites, it's time to go in and, and, and eliminate these people so that this child sacrifice stops. How many more years is it going to be? 400, more than 400, because she's right. There's 400 years there in Egypt plus uh, 40 years in the wilderness, about 450 years. Now, the reason I, I bring this up is because I grew up in churches where people would often say something along the lines of, I don't know how much worse this world can get before Jesus comes. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much worse it can get either, but I know it can get worse because yeah. it just keeps getting worse. And I am a firm believer that Jesus could come at any time, that his coming is imminent. That means he could come tonight. That means we wouldn't even have to drive home in the dark, in the rain. Yesterday I was driving uh, uh, out to Fairfield and back, and on the way to Fairfield, no problems. On my way back, I passed three wrecks. They totally closed, I think, all the lanes on I-80 at three different points because the rain and the dark had caused people to, 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 to be in accidents. Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to drive home in the rain and the dark? Amen. But guess what? If we have to drive home in the rain or the dark, we're going to do that. And I want us to prepare. What I want us to do tonight is think, how can we, as Elmira Baptist Church, and as parents, and as young people, and as grandparents, how can we prepare so that if Jesus delays his coming, there are still God-fearing people in the United States whenever he comes, if it's a year from now, or 10 years from now, or 100 years from now. The second uh, sin, the second iniquity that was going on at this time, in uh, Genesis chapter 19, we're told the story of Lot fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 19, and let's look at verse 4. <coughs> I only cough when I sing. I don't cough when I don't sing, but I enjoy the song so much I don't want to quit singing. So I just put up with my coughing and make sure I go wash my hands and put disinfectant on them before I shake your hand after the service. Of the Lord. <laughs> Genesis chapter 19, verse 4. But before they lay down, this is Lot and the two angels that had come into his house. They had had a meal. He had offered them a place to stay. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, uh, can pass the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And uh, you know that know them is a euphemism. They wanted to abuse these men. Terrible perversion in this society. And how long was the Lord going to let that continue before he sent Joshua and the Israelites to eliminate these wicked people Thank you, Guillermo. Eliminate these wicked people and bring righteousness to the land. How many years again? More than 400. So as Americans, I know, I, I know, me personally, I look at this nation and it seems to be very wicked. And I think to myself, how much longer can this go on? And the truth is it could go on for a long time. But here's, here's the good news. In every society, wicked society, ungodly society, there have been people of God who've worshipped him and who've loved him and have been able to continue to be Christians. 
It's just that for many years, it seemed like America was a Christian nation, didn't it? It seemed like people, if you, if you brought up a Bible passage, people would at least respect that. They might not agree with you. They might say, well, I see it differently, but they would respect that. There was, a, there was a, a, at least a veneer of morality in our nation, and it feels like all that's going away. And so it can be difficult. We think, boy, how are we going to survive in a nation like this? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. The first thing I want you to do, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. The first thing I want you to do, if we're going to survive in a society where we are a minority, if we're going to survive in an increasingly perverse society, we need to make sure that we love God. I want to focus on this Tonight, we, we love God. Amen. Now, we need to love each other. Amen. Amen. We need to love God's word. Amen. We need to love God. Amen. This verse here says, 1 John 2, 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you love God? What are you doing to cultivate your love for God? Because even, think, think, about, think about anyone that you love. It takes some emotional time, uh, an emotional energy, excuse me, and some time and some investment to keep that love strong. We do that for our spouse. We do that for our children. I think that's one of the blessed things about the Christmas season is most of us make extra time for family, parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren during that time, and we get to invest in each other and... and um, Go through some, uh, do some of the, uh, the Christmas traditions that we, we often do, some of the Christmas foods we often do. We invest in that because that is important, that we love our families. It's also important that we love God. What are we doing to cultivate a love for God? Now, it may have been, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. I, I remember when I was younger, it seemed like there were a lot of people around me who loved God and encouraged me to love God. It may be that there's fewer and fewer of those people, and we're going to have to work harder and harder. We're going to have to be more intentional in our effort to cultivate our love for God. This verse tells us that we will either love God or we will love the world. We can't love both. Can we think of some Bible characters, people in the Bible? Let's start with the young people first. We've got that, that's younger than, let's say younger than 18, okay? So Guillermo, this doesn't include you. <laughs> younger than 18, people in the Bible who loved God, and because they loved God, because they were open about their love for God, they seemed to be different. They didn't really fit in to the culture in which they lived. Can we think of people like that? Yes, Hudson. David. David. And we see that in the Psalms, don't we? The Psalms often reveal David's love for God. And we might say, well, yeah, but they were all, he lived among the Israelites. They all loved God. No, no, they didn't. Or a lot of them that were just as wretched as the Canaanites that they had replaced. But here was David. He said, I'm going to love God. And yeah, it made him an outsider. He didn't, he didn't always fit into his culture. Good, Hudson. Let's see. There's Hattie. Hattie, who else? Esther. Yeah. yeah. Esther didn't really fit into her culture either. That's a hard one. Here she is. She is seized. She's taken from her home involuntarily and added to a king's harem. And how easy it would have been for her to just say, you know what? I just, I guess I'm here. I just have to go along. 
But when Mordecai said, listen, your people are in danger, she set aside her own safety. Remember, she said, if I die, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. She set aside her own safety because her love for God and her love for her people was more important than fitting into her society. Good. Someone that's not a child now. Let's see if the adults are paying attention. Yes, AJ. Joseph. Joseph in Egypt. Here he is. He's a slave. He could, again, just gone along. But he says, no, I'm going to love God. We see that because even when he had opportunities to sin, he did not. Even when he had opportunities to take the glory for himself and say, yeah, I'm a pretty good dream interpreter, he didn't. He said, the source of this wisdom is from God. Good. Joseph, one more. Yes, Tammy. Daniel. That's the one that's in my notes. Daniel. Here he is in Babylon. He's been ripped out of his society, the Jewish society. He's been placed in a Babylonian society. And here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, says, this is, what, this is what I want you to do. I want you to study hard. I want you to eat well. And you're going to be my counselors. You're going to be part of my cabinet. Political cabinet. You're going to be part of my ruling class. But I just need you to go along with a few things. And Daniel and his three friends determined in their heart they, they would not defile themselves with the king's meat. They put their lives on the line. That's where it started. Later, we have his three friends would not bow down to the, 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 the giant idol. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace and God spared them. And then under another king, Darius, uh, Darius says, if you want to pray, if you have any requests, you can't talk to any god, you have to come to me. And of course, Daniel, what does he do? He goes to his house, throws open the, the, the windows, the doors, so people can see him, as he's always done, and he prays to God, the God of heaven. And they throw him in the lion's den, and God spares him. These four men, Daniel, and we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what were they motivated by? They were motivated by a love for and a fear of God. So they didn't fear Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar said, you see that burning fire over there? I'll have you thrown in there if you don't bow down. They said, we're not, we don't even need to be careful about answering you. There's a God in heaven that is more fearful than you are. We have to have that same attitude. And again, it's because they loved God and they feared him. And it was because they loved God and because they feared God that he was able to use them. So let's focus in a, in a society that's increasingly wicked, increasingly perverse. Let's focus on loving God. Here's the second thing I want us to focus on. Love God. Number two, live by faith. Live by faith. If you live by faith, your values will be different than the uh, values that, the, that society has and that society tells you to have. Now, I'm burdened particularly, when it comes to living by faith, I'm particularly burdened for young people. Say, what do you define as young person? Anyone younger than me, okay? So some of you are young people, just a little bit younger than me. What are we doing, young people, to develop our faith? What are we doing to cultivate, again, faith? The Bible says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What are we doing to develop our faith? I'm, I'm burdened about this. I spent some years, as you know, in, in Christian education, and we had a lot of dozens and dozens of students go through the school. 
many of them are not in church anymore. And I, I racked my mind, what's going on? Why do these young people, they go to some of them Christian school their entire 12 years and kindergarten, 13 years, and they get out of, of school and they're just, they're gone. The Christian school is not the answer. Now, I'm not saying Christian school is bad. I'm just saying just because you go to a Christian school doesn't develop your faith. So I thought about homeschoolers and several of my, my friends I grew up in, in homeschooling families and we talked and just because you homeschool doesn't mean your kids will turn out right. Lots of homeschooling children who've gone on a very different path. The most tragic one that I'm aware of uh, personally, I know that this man personally grew up in a, in a homeschooled his entire career, got out of school, ended up saying that he was a woman. You say, how can that happen? I don't know. I haven't had a chance to talk to him since he said he's a woman, but I know that what happens is if we don't develop our own personal faith, we can't live on the faith of others. We can't live on the faith of parents or grandparents. I have great parents. I love them. They're, they, they really are people of great faith. It really is amazing to me. But it doesn't matter how strong my parents' faith is, I've got to develop my own faith. And I've got four children. And uh, I try to have faith, and I, I'm praying for them, but they have to develop their own faith as well. So young people, what are you doing to develop faith? Because you're going to have to live by faith. There's a Bible character. There's a Bible character that I'm thinking of. We're going to start with the young people again. There's a Bible character I'm thinking of who had to live by faith. He had an opportunity to join the, the elites of society, to be one of the elites of society. And I'm being vague on purpose. I'm seeing if these young people are paying attention. He could be an elite of society, but he said, nope. No, I would rather be counted with the people of God than be one of the elites of society because he had faith that the rewards God offered were far better than any reward he might get in this life. Young person, can you tell me who it was that lived by faith and rejected the opportunity to be part of the elite in order to be uh, accounted with God's people? And if they don't have that, I'm going to ask the adults, so don't turn off your brains, adults. See some smiles. Okay, adults? Yes. Kurt. Moses. Moses. He could have been Pharaoh's daughter. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Whoops. Let me take a drink of water. We'll try that again. Yeah, you're awake. Thank you. Could have been Pharaoh's son. <laughs> but if Pharaoh's counted the Pharaoh's son, he said, <coughs> then I took that drink from <laughs> But he said it was more important to be counted with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He developed his own faith. Now we know his parents had faith. We know that because his mother hid him for three months. When the, the, the command was very specific, you are to kill these sons. And she said, no, no, there's something, there's a future for this boy. Even though Pharaoh wants him dead, and all the boys like him dead, there's a future for him. She hid him. And not just hid him, but then after three months, she put him in the water. Remember, the sister watched over him. There was faith that his mother had, but Moses had to develop his own faith. And so, young people, what are you doing to develop your own faith? Uh, Middle-aged people, what are we doing to develop our own faith? Senior saints, what are we doing to develop our faith? There never comes a point in our life where we can say, yeah, my faith is pretty good. I'm just going to stop right here. Mm -hmm. We've got to develop our faith. 
if you are going to live by faith, the first thing you're going to do, or one of the things you're going to do, is you're going to live by faith and leave the results to God. Now, what do I mean by that? Have you ever done the right thing and been persecuted for it? Maybe you told the truth when other people were lying and the people believed the liars and you got in trouble for lying when you told the truth. Or maybe at work, you were honest about some work that you had done or not done, and so you were overlooked for promotion, and they promoted somebody who just really, all he was is, is, is he just uh, praised the boss and made the boss look good, and he didn't do the work, but he, but he got the promotion. You say, how is that? That isn't right. Well, when we do what is right, we have to leave the results to God. That's living by faith. Daniel. We mentioned him earlier in the lion's den as a good example of this. Why did Daniel end up in the lion's den? Because he did something evil? Because he killed someone? Or maybe because he stole something? No. Daniel ended up in the lion's den because he prayed to God. And he had to just trust God for the results. So to live by faith means to obey God and leave the results to him. The second thing about living by faith is if we live by faith, we're going to end up rejecting the lies that are around us. Because we look at God's word, we say, boy, that, that doesn't line up with God's word. So obviously God's word is right. Even though all of society is going the other direction and says, no, 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 this is the way we do things here. One of the worst lies of our society is they tell us that the surest path to your own happiness is to live selfishly. They tell us the surest path to our own happiness is to live selfishly. If, it, if, it, if this is what you need to do to find happiness, then you should do it, they'll say to you. They'll say, follow your heart. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Boy, I think I know what will ensure my happiness. I often, in my mind, thoughts run through. That if you really want to be happy, you should do this. And I tell you what, nine times out of ten, that's the, the opposite of the thing I'm to do. Just to be, to be silly, uh, you get in a dispute with my wife about what's going on. You know what my mind says? If you really want to be happy, you need to put your wife in her place. You need to tell her what for. You need to, you need to overwhelm her in this argument and win the argument. Trust me, that's not a good path. And that's not the, God, the path God has called us to, is it? A soft answer turneth away wrath. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearer. That's the sure path to God's will. And when we do God's will, we do find happiness, by the way. We don't have a lot of unhappy, God-fearing Christians. Don't misunderstand. But you know what our society says? No, 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 that's not the way to happiness. There's many lies in our society, and I, I, I wrote a whole bunch down. I'm not going to go through each one. Just look out. Be aware. There are many lies in our society. And don't just believe everything you hear. Look at God's Word. Know God's Word. Meditate on God's Word. Let that run through your mind. That helps you when you do hear a lie to quickly recognize this isn't true. This isn't what the Bible says. Live by faith. Leave the results to God. Live by faith and 
reject the lies of our culture. Live by faith and invest in what is eternal. To live by faith is to invest in eternity rather than to spend life on the immediate. To live for eternity rather than to spend life on the immediate. A good example from the Bible for us is Jacob and Esau. Now, you know and I know Jacob was not a good man. I mean, he had problems. He was a liar and he was a polygamist and uh, his sons ended up murdering whole villages. I mean, th this guy had problems. But one thing he did have that God recognized was he believed that there was a God in heaven and that being on God's side was important. His father, Isaac, had a birthright. His father, Isaac's birthright, came from Abraham. Abraham had received it from God himself. We saw that in Genesis 15. And that birthright was really important to Jacob. But Jacob was the second born. Now, he was a twin, but Esau was born just before Jacob was. He was the second born. And in his society, that birthright would go to the older brother. So guess what Jacob did? He, he offered, when Esau came in from hunting, so hungry, he said, I tell you what, I'll give you this bowl of pot uh, of soup, this pot of soup, I'll give it to you if you'll give me the birthright. Now Esau wasn't about to die. Esau was not within just moments of keeling over with starvation. The, Esau's problem was he didn't see the importance of the birthright. All he saw was the pot of soup, and he was hungry. And what, what good is his birthright going to do me, he said to himself. You understand, Esau's focus was on the immediate. What do I get right now? Jacob's focus was here. You can have as much soup as you want. You just give me the birthright. That was what was eternal. And God blessed Jacob for that focus on eternity. Even though Jacob, in a lot of ways, was a wicked man, he had that right. Where is our focus? Are we focused on the immediate or are we focused on the eternal? Now, there's a lot of focus on the immediate because those are the things we can see, the things we can touch, the things we can experience right now. But if we live by faith, we're going to value what is eternal over valuing what is immediate. Again, we mentioned this one already also, but Moses did this, didn't he? What was immediate was he could have been Pharaoh's son. He could have been the elite of Egypt. All the wisdom, all the riches of Egypt, just right there for the taking. But he thought, you know what? These slave people, they're the people of the true God. These Egyptians are a bunch of idolaters. I'd much rather associate with this group that's despised and outcast today to receive the eternal reward than to have all of this right now and miss out on the eternal. How are we showing that we value what is eternal rather than what is immediate? Is it obvious in the choices that we make, in how we spend our money, in how we spend our time, in how we use our mental energies and faculties? To live by faith is to seem foolish to the world. To live by faith is to seem foolish to the world. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. That's in 1 Corinthians 4.10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. Now, what he does not mean is we act in irrational, stupid ways. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when the world looks at us, they say, Paul, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
Paul says, for Jesus' sake, we are doing what God's will is, even though it seems foolish to the world. Antonin Scalia has, has passed away, and he was a Catholic man, but he said this, and I've taken a lot of um, encouragement from these words. Antonin Scalia, who was a Supreme Court justice, he said, God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and God has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this, have courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. I think he's, he's accurate. There's a lot of people in our society, they, they have more money than we do, they have more power than we do, they have more degrees than we do, they may be smarter than we are, and they look down on us and they say, those poor Christians, so deluded. Trust me, when we get to eternity, they're the ones that are going to be, have been deluded all along. And we're going to be the ones who are rejoicing in that well done, good and faithful servant. But on this side of eternity, boy, it does seem foolish sometimes. You give 10% of your income to the church? Why? What, did your pastor come and give you a bill? No, I just voluntarily. Really? Why would you do that? You tell other people about, just let people have their own religions. You don't even tell other people about your religion. Well, yes, I, yes, I do. There's a lot of things we do that are going to seem increasingly foolish. By the way, it's going to seem increasingly foolish in our society to have children. Already, you can read articles. People, I don't want to have children. They're, they're destroying the climate. If we have more children, we're just going to destroy the climate faster. Those people will be shown in the end to have been the fools. On this side of eternity, it looks foolish to have children. Be a fool for Christ's sake. I don't mean be stupid. Don't be irrational. Don't spray paint people's cars with repent or perish. That's their property. Spray paint your own car if you want, but don't spray paint other people's car. But be a fool for Christ's sake. Don't be bothered at work when people think you're foolish, when your neighbors say that's stupid. Know your Bible. Know God's will for your life. And be willing to live by faith and seem foolish to the world. I want to encourage us additionally, love God, live by faith, be a disciplined Christian. The series we are going through on Sunday mornings about uh, uh, devotional disciplines and, and just basic Christian skills. Be a disciplined Christian. There's a lot of people who will say, oh, I'm a Christian, and you should ask them the question. Don't, don't, don't ask them this question, but think in your own mind. What are they doing in their daily lives that would reveal to anyone that they're a Christian? Because if we're a Christian, we ought to live, we ought to live differently. We ought to be salt. We ought to be light. That takes discipline. It takes work. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. That's 1 Corinthians 9.25. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. That word uh, 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 temperate is agonizomai, which means to engage in a contest, to fight or to struggle. We get the uh, English word agony from the root of that Greek word. Life is a struggle, but athletes struggle. Why? To gain a corruptible crown. To be, uh, there's, there's guys on the pitch right now 
in Qatar who have trained all their life to play soccer, to kick a ball with their feet. And really, it's, it, is, it is indeed fascinating. If you've ever watched, especially European or South American soccer, it really is fascinating what they can do with their feet. No hands. And they push that ball and move that ball. They spin the ball so it can, can literally curve through the air. It's amazing. But is that really the most important thing in life? Now, they're temperate. They have struggled. They have engaged in a contest. But to what purpose? Just to be crowned world champions, you know, World Cup, to hold the World Cup with their national team. We have a bigger goal than that, than a soccer championship. So what are we doing to struggle, to fight, to engage in the contest? It takes disciplined living. Motivation isn't enough. Emotions aren't enough. Just getting worked up isn't enough. It takes disciplined living. Some of you ought to go to the gymnasium with uh, Billy sometimes. There's some folks there, they live at the gym. They're called gym rats, right? They still call them that? Yeah, gym rats. They live at the gym. Guess what? They can't, they, they don't bench press 400 pounds because they got angry one day. <laughs> It takes work, it takes effort, right? They do, I, I, I remember going to a fellow's house in Oregon, he had a 50 pound dumbbell. And a 50 pound dumbbell, I said, what do you even do with that? He says, I, I used to do curls with that. <laughs> 50 pounds, curls? Oh yeah, he worked at it. Now he had quit working at it, so guess what? Now the dumbbell just sat on the floor. He couldn't even lift it up off the floor. But he used to be able to curl 50 pounds. Why? Because he got angry one day. No, it's not an emotional response. Uh, because somebody gave him a great motivational talk and he went into the gym and picked up a 50. No, no, no. It's not motivation. It's discipline. Mm -hmm. Every day lifting a certain amount of weight, eating right, drinking, drinking right, pushing your body. That's the picture that's given to us in 1 Corinthians 9.25. An athlete that striving for the mastery is temperate. He's disciplined in all things. Why? Just so he can, can win a temporary championship. We have something so much more important than that temporary championship. So we ought to be disciplined. Disciplined. Finally, we're going to love God. We're going to live by faith. We're going to be disciplined. Finally, and here's where we've feel like we're falling, not we, Elmira Baptist Church, many Americans are falling down. And Elmira Baptist Church, we can't fail here. We have to pass the baton to the next generation. Amen. We have to pass the baton to the next generation. I, I, we always want to start with our own children. That is the children whose parents or grandparents are members here at Elmira Baptist Church. But we want to go beyond that. How can we challenge the next generation here in Elmira, here in Vacaville, Fairfield, Dixon? How can we challenge the next generation with the truths of God's word? There are people that are pouring literally millions of dollars, billions of dollars, all kinds of effort to lead our children in the wrong direction. What can we do as a church to lead our children in the right direction? This way is a way of hopelessness and despair and emptiness. Now, it may take these children a lifetime to get there and figure it out. And that would be a sad, tragic situation. What can we do to lead them to hope, to truth? 
Fathers, what are we doing to pass the baton to our children? What are we doing to lead them? Mothers, what are we doing to pass our faith to the next generation? One of the most important things we can do is to live by faith ourselves. Our children, of all the people in our lives, our, 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 our spouses and our children see right through us, whether we want them to or not. They see right through us. They know what is really important to us. They know if we're living by faith, if we're just talking. We have to live by faith, show them that we're living by faith, train them to focus on what is important. There's so much distraction in our society. I'm constantly distracted. You pick up your smartphone, you, you sit in front of the computer, you, there's just distractions everywhere. Our world is very good at distracting us. So training ourselves to be focused and then training our children to be focused on what is important. By the way, those of you that are homeschooling, those of you that are homeschooling, your children from time to time will say to you, because our children said to us, why do I have to learn this? When am I ever gonna use this in life? Whether it's diagramming sentences or long division or whatever it is, you know, algebra, whatever, geometry was always the one I was surprised. When am I ever gonna use geometry in my life? Well, a lot of people use geometry, they just don't know it. They don't call it geometry, but they use geometry. When am I ever going to use this? You know, school isn't all about just learning skills that are applicable to life. School is also about training our minds to focus on what does not interest us. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> school is about training our minds to focus on what is not interesting to us. I don't even need to ask you, those of you that have jobs, how many times are you asked to focus on something that is not interesting to you? <laughs> Mothers, how many times do you have to focus on something not interesting to you? No interest whatsoever, but if somebody doesn't do the job, it's not going to get done. Life isn't about just doing what's fun and what we enjoy, what attracts our interest. Life is about focusing our minds on what isn't interesting to us, on what doesn't naturally draw our attention. So young people, those of you in school, you say, why am I learning this? Sometimes you're just learning something so you can train your mind to focus on what doesn't interest you. I know that's hard. I, I, it's hard for me. There are certain things I like about a pastor that I, I, I'll just do because that's fun. Then there's other things about being a pastor that it takes work just to focus. We need to train our children to focus on what is truly important. To say, okay, this is where my focus needs to be right now. This other stuff, and all the distractions, I'm going to push that aside. This is where my focus needs to be. Pass the baton to the next generation. I'm not, I am not, I am not worried or scared about the direction our country is headed because I'm more concerned about what am I doing with God's will for my life. People, other people can, can do what they're going to do and we can trust God as, as the righteous judge. What am I doing? What is my family doing? What is my church doing? Because otherwise we can get our minds here and there and everywhere else. We can get discouraged. We can become distracted. Let's focus on passing our faith, our love for God, our disciplined living to the next generation. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather tonight. Again, I've been blessed to sing some more songs, to learn some new songs. Your word is like a garden. 
It's like a mine. It's like an armory where we can find joy and refreshment like we would in a garden, where we can find treasures like we would in a mine, and where we can find weapons and defensive um, uh, um, shields, defensive armor for this fight in which we are engaged. And we ask that tonight we would be encouraged and challenged again not to be worried about where our society is going as much as to be concerned, am I walking in God's will? Are my children, is my family walking in God's will? What can I do to make my church a, a, a brighter lighthouse? I ask, Lord, you would open the door for Elmira Baptist Church to have a greater impact in the youth of Vacaville, and Elmira, and Dixon, and Fairfield. Open our eyes to the opportunities we have. Open our eyes, perhaps, to some opportunities we've overlooked. But open those doors so that we can offer hope. We can offer purpose. We can offer true fulfillment to this next generation of Americans. Father, particularly grip the hearts of fathers tonight. It's so easy for us to become focused on our work and enmeshed in our work and to miss the opportunities we have to train our own children, the opportunities we have to invest in other people. So Father, grip our hearts and uh, direct us to pass this baton of faith and love for you and disciplined living to the next generation. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.